Hey, 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 welcome in. This is the first episode of The Daily. My name is Lauren Tomes, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm so excited for you to listen to our guest that we have for today. But I just want to tell you, this is the debut episode, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. If you know me from Chicago, you know that I love talking about sports, but I love getting the stories behind some of the sports. And what this podcast will allow us to do is stretch out a little bit and talk to interesting people about interesting subjects for a longer period of time. And my first guest is exactly that. Bob Kendrick runs the National Baseball Negro League Museum in Kansas City. I've had the pleasure of doing a couple of broadcasts with him. He is a genuinely interesting person who has a lot to say and has the combined wisdom of all the Negro Leagues at his disposal. So I thought this, to kick things off as someone who loves baseball, my grandfather played in the Negro Leagues, what a way to start things off with episode one. We're talking with a real historian of the game, Bob Kendrick. Hello, this is Bob. Hey, Bob, it's Lawrence. How are you? What's up, Lawrence? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing really well. Are you free? Yes, I am. Great, man. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. So this is the... Uh, the first episode of the the new pod that Radio.com is letting me do, and I said, you know what? I I want to talk with Bob about Negro League history and baseball. That's very cool. So I'm, I'm glad that you were available to do it. Let's start here. How did you get started? I know that you were a volunteer. Is that right, that you were a volunteer <laughs> at the museum? Yeah, I started as a volunteer at the museum back in 1993, just a few years from its infancy. So, you know, I've been here for a long time in some capacity. But going back to 1993, at that time, I was working for the Kansas City Star and uh, Daily Newspaper here in Kansas City. I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first-ever traveling exhibition. I was a copywriter in the promotions department at the Star and got introduced to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum at that time. And, And, Lawrence, as I always tell folks, I, I fell in love with the museum. I fell in love with the athletes who made this history and just wanted to become as engaged and involved as I could. I started doing a lot of the PR marketing things for the museum as a volunteer at that point, and then in 1998 became the museum's first-ever director of marketing, subsequently VP of marketing, and then I left for about 13 months and then came back uh, in 2011 to become president of the organization. So, you know, it's an amazing story in its own right to go from volunteer to now trying to run the place. Uh, But I think it kind of speaks to me in terms of the love that I have for this this amazing story. And, you know, I I was so blessed to meet so many of the players. And, you know, when you get to know the likes of Buck O'Neill and and Monty Irvin and the late, great Ted Double Duty Radcliffe and, People like that, they just leave an indelible mark on you. And and so I just wanted to learn as much as I could, and and I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about this incredible piece of baseball and Americana. So growing up, you were a baseball fan. Hank Aaron was your guy? Yeah, that was my guy. Still my guy. As a kid growing up in little bitty Crawfordville, Georgia. Crawfordville, Georgia is east of Atlanta, west of Augusta, all of about 500 people. As a matter of fact, Lawrence, the late great Buck O'Neill says, I'm the only person he ever met from Georgia that didn't claim Atlanta as home. 
because Atlanta is not home. It's Crawfordville. And I'm very proud of those humble rural roots of mine. And But, yeah, I grew up there. Henry Aaron was my childhood idol, and and he's still an idol of mine. And as I tell the story all the time, I was almost 12 years old when he broke Babe Ruth's record. And as he was circling the bases in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, I was touching them all in my mother's living room in the little old tiny house of ours that we had. And so the couch was first base, the old TV was second base, the other little couch was third base, and her recliner was home plate. And, and I tell, I, you know, I told him the story on one of his subsequent trips here to Kansas City to do something with the museum, and he just, he just cracks up. You know, this little kid who is still the only person that I've ever been starstruck around. And we've had American presidents visit the museum, First Lady Michelle Obama, former Vice President Al Gore, General Colin Powell, a plethora of athletes and entertainers. And the only person that I've ever been starstruck around is Henry Aaron. And no disrespect to any of them. They not Hank Aaron. And so <laughs> I'm, reduced, <laughs> I'm reduced to that 12-year-old kid every time I'm in the presence of, of this man. And so... And we've had many occasions to do things here at the museum, and you might be aware that there's this wonderful photograph of him standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama in 1952. And he must weigh 160 pounds, if that. And, of course, he was getting ready to leave Mobile to go join the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro Leagues. And Henry, of course, at that time was a cross-handed hitting shortstop. And he's standing there at the train station, and all he has is this little duffel bag. And he told me, he says, Bob, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag, a dollar fifty cents in my pocket, and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me. Going to go chase that dream, but it worked out pretty well for the hammer. And and, and I do think, Lawrence, in many respects, when people learn that Henry Aaron came out of the Negro Leagues, it validates the talent. That was there in the Negro Leagues. But, you know, and it also speaks to the beauty of baseball. Whoever your favorite baseball player was as a kid, chances are they're going to be your favorite baseball player the rest of your life. And so in my eyes, there will never be another baseball player better than Henry Aaron. Even if they're better than Henry Aaron, I won't say they're better than Henry <laughs> what, what was it about his game that drew you in? I think everything, not only, you know, the game and those great hands and eyes, you know, we're talking about the quickest wrist probably this sport has ever seen. I mean, his his hands through the hitting zone are just absolutely incredible. And, you know, he always said he never looked for a fastball because he didn't think anybody could get a fastball by it. That's how quick his hands were. But, see, Henry Aaron is probably grossly underrated, if it's possible, for a Hall of Famer to be underrated, but grossly underrated for his all-around ability. Henry Aaron did everything great. He really did. And, and because he played a corner outfield, he doesn't get as much love for his defense. You know, that's kind of reserved more times than not for the center fielder. Sure. But Henry Aaron, Henry Aaron played a beautiful outfield, great throwing arm, could steal bases if he wanted to. And, and the thing that I tell people all the time, you take away all 755 home runs. And the man still has over 3,000 hits. I mean, it's just absolutely the, just an absolute model of consistency but because he did it in almost this unassuming fashion. 
that people don't take note. You know, he wasn't as flamboyant as Willie Mays. You know, his hat didn't blow off when he ran like Willie did. You know, and, and if you ask Henry, Henry would say, well, Willie probably wore his hat a, a size too big so it would blow off and make him look like he was running faster than what he actually was. You know, but that's the kind, that's the, that's the beauty of our game. And it just depends on what you like. But I think those are the things. And then the class and grace and dignity in which he carried himself throughout his career, but particularly during that tumultuous time that he was making this ascent in terms of breaking Roof's record. Very difficult. So when he makes his first visit to the Negro Leagues Museum in 1999, that's 25 years later. And it literally took almost 25 years before Henry Aaron could celebrate what many believe to be the most prestigious record of all time because of the racial tension that had been created in and around this assault on Roof's record. This black man in the South about to break Babe Roof's record, and people were not happy about it. Of course, as you well know, he was under death threat. His, his family is in hiding. Quite frankly, I don't know if he knew if he would make it around the bases when he hit record-breaking home run 715. And this is in 1974. You know, and, and so 25, year, 25 years later, he finally gets, gets to celebrate this wonderful record. And I got a chance to take him on his first tour of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, man, it was just absolutely electrifying for me. And I'm a nervous wreck. And I'm trying to lay out my wardrobe, make sure everything is in place. And my wife is looking at me like, man, what is wrong with you? I was like, you don't understand. This is Henry Aaron. This ain't just any old tour of the Negro Leagues Museum. This is Henry Aaron. And it was absolutely electric. But the thing that I remember most about that tour was afterwards we got a chance to sit up in the mezzanine level of the gym theater across the street from the museum, and he and his wife, Billy, and I ate Gates barbecue ribs. So I got the two of my idol and eat barbecue ribs with him on the same day. It just doesn't get any better than that for me. That, that is phenomenal. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to talk to you because I know that the, you're, uh, you're kind of the, the living gatekeeper to a lot of these stories when it comes to the Negro League. I, I'm curious, when you first started there as a volunteer, what drew your eye? Like, what did you walk in and go, oh, wow, I – I didn't know that, or that's really interesting, and, and you wanted to dig deeper into. Well, when I got introduced to the museum, and, and I'll be honest, Lawrence, I was not unlike most of the people who are introduced to the museum. I didn't know a lot about the Negro League. I knew the names Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson. Those names kind of transcended and went mainstream. But I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude of what this history represented, both on and off the field. I had no idea that Henry Aaron had left the Negro Leagues to go join the Braves. At that time, the Boston Braves, who became the Milwaukee Braves, who eventually became the Atlanta Braves. I had no idea that Ernie Banks had played here for the great Kansas City Monarchs or Elston Howard or Roy Campanella leaving the Baltimore Elite Giants to go play in, in the major leagues. Didn't know about these. These guys are obviously icons in major league baseball whose roots began in the Negro Leagues. So you can only imagine when you start talking about the likes of Oscar Charleston or Ray Dandridge or Buck Leonard or Leon Day or Boo June Wilson, these guys who pre, pre, you know, they predate them. They were too old to go to the major leagues, who were every bit as good, and some will argue even better. It, it just fascinated me. 
And then when we look at what the Negro Leagues represented, not only on the field, but off the field, that is when I really became captivated because this is a civil rights story as much as it is a baseball story. And so for me, getting a chance to meet Buck O'Neill for the first time and like everybody who met Buck, fell in love with Buck. You wanted to be on Buck's team. And Buck was working so diligently and passionately to make sure that this museum could be built so that they would never be forgotten. And, and so I just wanted to be part of that. And then it just struck me in such a way that I, I really have just become very passionate about what this history represents. And, and so now to have a hand in shaping the story and, and keeping the story of the Negro Leagues alive is something that I, I – I, I really do hold very near and dear. It is a blessing to do the work that we do here. And I think any time that you can do something that is bigger than yourself, it, it, it's as good as it gets. And, and I think all of us who are part of this organization understand that we have an opportunity to leave a legacy. We have an opportunity to leave something that will hopefully stand the test of time so that generations of young people will have an opportunity to come and learn something that really none of us had an opportunity to learn during our own formal education. And, and hopefully at the same time, Lawrence, be inspired by the passion and the pride and the perseverance, the determination that these athletes demonstrated in the face of adversity. As I tell our guests all the time, our story is not about the adversity. No, it's what they did to overcome the adversity. That's the real story. Yeah, so a lot of people want to dwell on the social conditions but here we focus on that ability to rise above all of that. So, yeah, you know, you won't let me play with you. I create my own league. What is more American than that? You know, and that's why I say the story embodies the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history. It's very celebratory. Like whenever I think about those times, um, and I have some gloves from, from my grandfather who played with a bunch of those guys down in Chattanooga. And I think about it, the colors of the uniforms. I think about the way that those uniforms were worn. I think about all the fun that could be had on, on some of those incredible fields. And, and I feel it's, it, it is a very, very celebratory time. When you think back to, to that era after all the people that you've talked to throughout the years when it comes to the exhibits, what was it about the Negro Leagues that drew fans into the game? I think really those things that you just touched on, that style of play in particular. See, Negro Leagues baseball was actually counterintuitive to the way the game was being played in the Major League. Major League Baseball back then, for the most part, was a base-to-base -base kind of game. So, you know, you got on base, guy moved you over to second, and then the big hitters came in and drove you in, but not in the Negro Leagues. They dropped that bunt down, they bunt their way on first, they steal second, they steal third, and if you weren't too smart, they steal home. And that was the style of play. It was fast and aggressive and daring, and it just appealed to a lot of people, not only black folks, but a lot of white fans who came to those games as well because what they were witnessing truthfully, truthfully was the best baseball being played in this country. Without a question, the most exciting brand of baseball that was being played. And so that's why I always find it interesting that Negro League players never transcribed to the belief that they were playing an inferior style of baseball. They never believed that the major leagues were better than they were, but everybody else did. And so they always wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anybody to ever play this game. 
but the way that they played that game, they understood that baseball was entertainment. And, and so you, when you went to a Negro Leagues game, you were going to be thoroughly entertained. Or as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you never seen before. And that's why people were so excited about Negro Leagues baseball, and they flocked to those games and the energy level, the charisma, the swag, I guess, as the young people would say today, was always on display when you went to a Negro Leagues game. I think people would, would be – you brought up Hank Aaron, an example, Ernie Banks as well. But I feel like the the history of, of Jackie Robinson – with the Negro Leagues kind of gets lost in the story of Jackie Robinson breaking the color line. Why does that happen? You know, I find it fascinating as well, and that's one of the things that we've kind of taken up um, to try and help people understand that the story of Jackie Robinson does not happen without the Negro Leagues. Lawrence, you would be amazed at the number of people who come to visit the museum are every year, and they walk in and see these images of Jackie Robinson, and they had no idea that Jackie's illustrious professional baseball roots began in the Negro Leagues right here in Kansas City with the great Kansas City Monarchs, 1945. Yeah, 1945, he joins the Kansas City Monarchs. By the end of that season, he had been signed away uh, by the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. Of course, he would spend the 46th season in Montreal and then make that monumental walk on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15, 1947. But baseball has done a wonderful job of helping us understand the magnitude of what took place on April 15, 1947, haven't done as good a job of helping us understand where he came from. You know, it's like Jackie just walked out of nowhere and started playing. It's like he came out of the cornfield and they just put him (laughs) on a baseball diamond. (laughs) No, his real rookie season was 1945, here for the great Kansas City Monarchs. So it was our city and the Negro Leagues that gave America arguably its greatest hero in Jackie Robinson. And the thing that we know, had it not been for the Negro Leagues, we don't get Jackie Robinson. Now, you got to think that our sport would have integrated at some point in time. But where were those players going to come from? Yeah. And, and when you look at the influx of talent from 1947 through the early 1960s, baseball has never seen that level of talent come into its fold at one time in the history of its sport. In the history of its sport, when you start talking about these megastars who came in from Jackie Robinson through Satchel Paige and Larry Doby and, you know, Roy Campanella, all this talent, Minnie Minoso, uh, Ernie Banks, Willie Mays, all these guys come out of the Negro Leagues into the Major Leagues. And if you're looking for something that will evident the talent that was in the Negro Leagues, just think about this. From 1949 to 1959, nine of 11 National League MVPs were former Negro League stars. There's no question about the impact. But as I tell our guests, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. Right. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. And when I hear someone who I have the utmost respect, who did get a chance to play in the major leagues, and it's in the Hall of Fame, but he got there so late in his career, the great Monty Irvin. And, and Monty Irvin, to have had the opportunity to know Monty Irvin and Buck O'Neill, I don't know if it gets any better than that. They're two of the most remarkable human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. And when I hear Monty Irvin say, I played with Willie Mays, and I played against Henry Aaron, and neither of them are Josh Gibson, mm. it just leads you to wonder how good was Josh. 
you know, or when I hear the old timers in the Negro League say the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would have been Willie Mays. You just you kind of said to yourself, you're like, damn, how good was Oscar Charleston? Because Mays is widely regarded as the greatest baseball player of all time. And, of course, he comes out of the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Band. So what about all these guys that we did not get a chance to see perform? Yeah, and, and Mays and Aaron and Banks, and you know, these were good young stars in the Negro Leagues who developed to be Hall of Fame players in the major leagues. Man, there was a degree of group of players that came out of the Negro League, would have been stars in any league, had the doors open sooner. I really appreciate that one of the things that you value at the museum, and I've heard you talk about this in other interviews too, is is the impact that Latino players had on the game and how that's an important part of the history of the game. And you're talking about that era, that influx, influx of talent that comes in through that era. Why is that an important part of the game that you want to make sure gets accentuated too? Because the Negro League didn't care what color you were. They didn't care. You know, Lawrence, all they cared was can you play, which is the only barometer that should be. And, and so what I find fascinating about the story of the Negro Leagues is that it's a league that was born out of exclusion, and it becomes one of the most inclusive entities in American society. So they embrace that Hispanic player, that Spanish-speaking athlete could find a home playing in the Negro Leagues when they couldn't find a home playing in the major leagues, or vice versa. That Negro League player was welcomed into those Spanish-speaking countries. And when they went there, they were treated like heroes, staying in the finest hotels, eating in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer, come back home, be treated like second-class citizens. And, and so it didn't matter. And so when guests come here to the Negro Leagues Museum and they learn that the Negro Leagues were more times than not the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries, or that they would take baseball, professional baseball, into Canada. They would be the first to go to Japan. They go to Japan in 1927, where it's been widely received that it was Babe Ruth and, and his All-Stars that took and introduced professional baseball to the Japanese in the 30s, early 30s. Well, it's not true. It was actually a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would visit Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series, they go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. But as I always preface that with our visitors, the Negro Leagues helped make the game the global game that it is today. It is a global sport. And at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. They helped make it that global game, and nobody knew anything about it. So it's very eye-opening when people come here, because all of this stuff comes to the forefront now. And you kind of leave scratching your head wondering, how in the world did I not know this? So, yeah, there's always been this symbiotic relationship between the Negro Leagues and those Spanish-speaking athletes who were bonded by the great game of baseball. Why do you think that, that there is more joyful expression of baseball, whether it was in the Negro Leagues or in the, the Latin leagues, or even now, like you go to the Korean league where they're bat flipping <laughs> all over the place. It's pretty crazy. Well, why, why do you think, well, how did that develop out of the Negro leagues, that, that, that there was this kind of joyous way to play the game? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there was this level of bravado. Of course it was. And, and and this celebratory nature of playing the game. And so, you know, the bat flips and all of this stuff that people can't complain about, these unwritten rules in baseball. See, back then that was almost like a little cold word that the major leaguers had as it related to the Negro League players. As Buck would say, you know, a guy would go into the hole, Lawrence, and he would dive, flip it behind his back, and, and start the double play. And back then the major leaguers would accuse them of showboating. But as as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. And so if you don't <laughs> want me to flip my back, get me out. You know, and, and so, yeah, so they played the game in that manner. You know, it was only in the Negro League that Satchel Paige could be on the mound talking to a guy coming up, as he did with Josh Gibson. You know, or and that kind of bravado that was showed. And so some guys say, well, that's, you know, disrespectful to the game. But say who? You know, who? Who made that determination? And, and I think that's why when we see the world games, you see the excitement and energy that the world games bring. To me, it's one of the best things that baseball has ever done was the introduction of those world games. And, and then you get a true flavor for how this game is played. And, and, and that's why I fell in love, like most of us did, with Ichiro Suzuki, because Ichiro had that Negro League spirit in him. He played the game with that way, with that the speed and his ability to hit the ball to all fields, a great arm, a great defense. And here's this kid coming from Japan when the world is saying, well, you know, you put up those numbers in Japan, but you can't do that in the major leagues. Well, what does he do? He does the same thing in the major leagues. But he, and he did it with this bravado about him, even though it was in a, in a very much Japanese mode, but his gait when he walked and the flair and the bounce that he had on the field. Negro League Baseball, that's why, Buck and, that's why Buck and Ichiro hit it off. They were two kindred spirits. And, and, and I think that, that spirit kind of resonates everywhere except for in the major leagues, where you have this kind of like this sanctity about the sport and you're not supposed to do this and that and this kind of thing. Well, those unwritten rules were written in Major League Baseball. It really wasn't written anywhere else. <laughs> I, I I in having Ichiro retire this past week, I I love that you're telling that story because he's he was one of my favorite players to watch, and you're right. I do think that there's something that even though he didn't speak English publicly, that if you're someone who enjoyed that grew up hearing the great stories of the Negro Leagues, for example, you gravitated towards Ichiro. Of course. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's why he and Buck connected. Well, number one, I think Buck could un- identify with what he was going through. As I mentioned earlier, despite the success that he had in Japan, there was always this air of skepticism that you can't do that in the major leagues. Why? Because we just automatically believe that the best baseball is being played in the U.S. in the major leagues. Well, Buck could relate to that because no matter how good they were in the Negro Leagues, there was that same level of skepticism. You did that in the Negro League, but you can't do that in the Major League. So what happens? These guys go up and do the same thing in the Major League once the door was open for them. And I think Buck identified that with each row, and they just became almost kindred spirits uh, during the time that Buck was still alive and Ichiro was playing and making his visits to the museum and Buck out at the cage, sitting around the cage and talking and that whole nine yards, and, and I think we saw Buck impact so many of the 
young major league stars of all colors, uh, but particularly the young African-American and Hispanic ball players. And, and one of my favorite stories, uh, the late Yordano Ventura, uh, when he was in double-A baseball, the Royals each year bring them here to the museum, and as they do with their players and pitchers of the year from all levels of minor league organization and at that time, he didn't speak very good English, but he had his translator with him, and I'm taking them on a tour of the museum, and I'm telling all these stories about Satchel Paige. And when we get on the field of legends at the museum, where we have this life-size statue of Satchel, Giordano, who is from the Dominican Republic, he goes over and he rubs elbows with Satchel. Well, if you remember that year when he was in A baseball, he gets promoted to the big show. Mm-hmm. And he told all of his guys that when they come to the museum, you rub shoulders, elbows with Satchel Page because it's going to help you get to the major <laughs> He truly believed that the spirit of Satchel got him to the major league and, and that big leap from double A to the big team. And, you know, but that's, I love the fact that we're relating these stories to all of the athletes, regardless of what color you are. Because that's the beauty of the Negro League. They didn't care what color you were. They didn't care what gender you were. So you had women playing in the Negro Leagues. You had women who were executives on teams in the Negro Leagues. That speaks to the inclusiveness of this of this, this rich piece of history and why it is so profoundly important that we don't lose this history. It's almost like you're reading from my sheet of questions now because I wanted to, to ask you about Effa Manley. Yes, Effa Manley, the first woman to own and operate a professional team. She and her husband, Abe, owned the Newark Eagles. But it was Mrs. Manley who ran the day-to-day operations of that baseball team. And, Lawrence, she knew the business of baseball as well as any man. Great talent play for her. My dear friend, again, the late, great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, who would integrate the American League just weeks after Jackie, Willie Wells, Leon Day. These guys are all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame all played for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. The late, great Don Newcomb, who we just lost a few weeks ago, played for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. She's the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so the Negro League plays this amazing role in opening doors not only for those of color, but also creating gender-based opportunities as well, uh, opportunity for women to participate. And that's why I talk about the inclusive nature of what the Negro League represents. All of that is embodied inside this story. And so as you can well imagine, when the average visitor comes here, this is brand new for them. You know, and they are amazed by what they learn and a little dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn it. Why didn't I know this when I was going to school? Well, as you and I both know, American historians, man, did us a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana away from us. So countless generations of us have gone through our own formal education without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And and I think that's what makes this story so profound and so compelling and so awe-inspiring for the thousands of people each year when they make their way to Kansas City. But I think it's also why it's so important that we as an institution make sure that this story 
is available to any and everyone, whether they ever make their way to Kansas City or not. It's too important to leave isolated in Kansas City. And the transcending nature of what this history still represents today is vitally important for our young people to be introduced to this story. We both did the Double Duty Classic. Yes. Give me some stories about Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. Well, one of my favorites in Duty. Duty should be in the Hall of Fame. The bar none, Double Duty Radcliffe is as influential in this game as anyone. But, you know, one of my favorite stories about Duty, Duty is as colorful a character in the Negro Leagues, actually in baseball, as anyone. And for those who might be hearing his name for the first time, he, he earned his nickname Double Duty when the great sports writer Damon Runyon saw Duty catch a satchel page shutout in the first game of a doubleheader, pulled off the catching gear, took the mound, and threw a shutout in the second game of the doubleheader and said he was worth the price of two admissions. Uh, but Double <laughs> Duty did not, lack, did not lack for confidence. Double Duty, Lawrence, would inscribe on his chest protector, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> I love and that. Time, and more times than not, he was gunning them out too, man. But yeah, duty was uh, one of the days that I, I'm going to kick myself until the day that I die. We were celebrating duty's 100th birthday here in Kansas City. And we had duty and Buck O'Neill in a conference room with a plate of Gates barbecue going around. And both of them are trading stories. And nobody had a tape recorder going. I will kick myself, but I mean, but the stories were just amazing. It was like, okay, you tell a story. Now I got to top that story. And they must have gone on for an hour or more. And and, and no one had a doggone tape recorder going on to document this. I will kick myself, uh, as my mother would say, as long as I'm in my natural mind for missing that opportunity. Well, if someone is, is visiting the museum for the first time, how would you suggest that they try and consume all of this knowledge? Well, I, I think when you make your plans to visit the museum, and, you know, I know everybody takes on a museum experience in different ways. We have multimedia displays. We've got two theaters here that kind of help bring the story to life for those. Uh, make plans to kind of immerse yourself into this. And I always recommend, whenever you can, bring the family and pass this history down. Because as you can well imagine, when young people come into the museum, they're seeing a segregated society for the first time. You know, thankfully, Lawrence, they've been removed from those kinds of struggles. Now, they may experience racism in some way, shape, form, or fashion, uh, but they won't experience segregation. And, and as you can well imagine, segregation summarized through the eyes of a child when they come into the Negro Leagues Museum, quite simply. That was dumb. And they're right. It was dumb. But it was the way that our country was. And, and what we've done with the story of the Negro Leagues is help people un see how our country unfolded, how it has grown. Now, that doesn't mean that we still don't have work to do. As you know, we've got a lot of work to do as it relates to race relations in this country. And if our young people are going to be charged with doing it, they have to understand that life hasn't always been as good for some of its citizens of this country as it is today. You know, and, and so, but it's about empowering them to take us where we still need to go in the future. And we do that by helping them understand segregation by telling it through the eyes of black baseball players. 
and, and they can identify with the fact that if you're good enough to play whatever professional sport it is or whatever profession that may be, then you don't have to worry about those kinds of things. But what you find is in the midst of the Negro Leagues, all of these obstacles that were put in front of them, they overcame those obstacles. They never lost their love of this game. And so if I've got to sleep on the bus and eat my peanut butter and crackers, then so be it. I'm going to keep playing ball. And really, that's the spirit that you see here. And that's why I talk about it from the standpoint that this is not a woe is mine kind of story. These athletes were never crying about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. But again, the love of the game helped change our sport, but more importantly, it helped change our country for the better. And that's the triumphant story that we bring to life here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now, last year, there there was a, an incident of vandalism, and I felt like mm-hmm. there was also a, a, an inspiring outpouring of affection and donations for the museum. How, how do things stand right now with the museum, and, and what was your reaction to kind of this like movement to make sure that everything was going to be okay from a financial standpoint? Well, you know, and the incident that you're referring to took place back late June, of 2018 in our still-developing Buckle-Neal Education and Research Center. And, and, Lawrence, that's going to be housed in the site of the old Paseo YMCA, which is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. That's where the leagues were formed here in Kansas City in 1920, led by Chicago and Andrew Rube Foster, who led that meeting in Kansas City of eight independent black baseball team owners. They meet at the Paseo YMCA out of that meeting to success the establishment of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league well we've been working on that project to save that old historic landmark it had been abandoned and so we had started doing the preservation work on it to build the buckle neal education research center there and in late june someone went into the building deliberately cut a mainline water pipe and flooded the building causing about a half million dollars of damages and certainly has slowed the project down and as I tell the story, man, the day that I walked into the building and seen all that water in it, and once you learn that it had been done deliberately and very maliciously, I think my heart just sank into my stomach. You know, accidents occur. And had it been an accident, water pipe burst on its own, we'd had the same level of damage, but I wouldn't have felt the same way. But once you learn that someone had done this deliberately, it just hurts you to your core to think that somebody would want to just so maliciously damage something that the entire community was so excited about the fact that we were restoring this old building, which had become a community eyesore and harboring illicit activity and so forth. And all this work that we had done kind of got derailed a little bit. And I'll be honest, at that point in time, man, you're just ready to wave the white flag. You're ready to give up on people. And and you know you can't give up on people. And then uh, as a reminder of that, as you mentioned, this outpouring of love from people around the country who many of them we had, did not know, who caught wind of this story, and they just wanted to lift our spirits. They wanted to support. And, and it really wasn't even about how much money was being generated. It was just this groundswell of support as Little League teams were putting together fundraisers and donating the money to the museum and individuals from around the country all sending in contributions. And what does it do? It renews your spirit in people, something that we already do. You know, you know you can't give up on people. And what we also understand is that there's always been more good people than bad people. 
Uh-huh. And as Buck O'Neill so beautifully would say, people will do bad things and good people will fix them. And the good people started to step up to help us fix this situation. And it, at the same time, it renewed my spirit. Uh, and then after that, you kind of get out of that mode of this kind of wallowing in self-pity because, again, you can't be a steward of this story if you're going to be wallowing in self-pity. Like I said, they ain't cry about the injustice. They went out and did something about it. And so now you're re-energized to go out and do what you know you have to do, and that's to make sure that you move this project forward. We can't give the hater the last laugh. No way. And, and so now you're more determined to make sure that Buck's dream of this education and research center comes to fruition. Bob, I really appreciate your time. I could talk to you forever. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad that I know you, man. I truly am because I, I really do think that, that you have a, uh, a real mission to, to keep the spirit of that league alive, and I think you do a tremendous job doing it. Well, Lance, I appreciate it, man. Same can be said here because this, this only works when we have voices out there who have echo how important this is. And so you giving this story a voice as you have throughout the years just only helps introduce it to more and more people, and, and hopefully more, and pe more people will become involved with this museum and join our efforts to make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on long after the last Negro League player has passed on. We don't want this story to die when we lose that last Negro Leaguer. And so these kinds of opportunities mean the world to us. So I appreciate, you know, you being a continued voice for us. Bob, thanks for so much for doing this. I will talk to you soon. Okay, Lawrence. Thanks, man. Anytime. Thank you. That is Bob Kendrick. He is the president of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. And if you're like, okay, well, wait, where can I go? So the Negro League Baseball Museum, 1616 East 18th Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Tickets are between 6 and $10, nlbm.com. If you're living in Chicago and you're within the sound of my voice, I am going to be hosting a fundraiser, kind of. Well, actually, it's my good friend, Shakia Taylor, who writes incredible baseball prose, and she's going to be a guest on The Daily at some point soon. She invited me to be a guest bartender on the 13th of April, so right around Jackie Robinson Day. We are going to raise money for the museum, and I'm going to serve horrible drinks to people to do so. But we, we're doing it because of that, because of, of what happened last year with the, the horrible vandalism that happened. What I love about this is that He's the keeper of the flame. Bob is the keeper of the flame of these stories. And it's so great that he's out there, that the museum exists, and that there are people who love baseball who may not know some of these stories. And then once they find out these stories, they're able to share them and pass them down. I also love that he talked about Ichiro, who's going to be a feature of tomorrow's podcast. And now I can add in some of the stuff that Bob had to say about Ichiro to it. But I'm glad that you got an opportunity to hear from Bob. And it's one of the things that I want to try and do with this podcast. 
I want to try and bring in voices that you may not have heard, stories that you may not know, and things that may end up piquing your interest and, and hitting you in a place that you didn't even know existed. So I thank you for indulging me on the debut episode of The Daily. We're going to have a good time with this. And as we go on, there'll be some production elements to it. I mean, this is pretty much just me and Bob talking, but that's okay. We'll put in some music and some other things once we, we get our feet up under us. But I'm glad that you consumed episode one and got a chance to meet Bob. Bob's good, and he's doing good work. And I promise you, on this podcast, we'll keep spotlighting the people that are doing good work. Thanks for listening to episode one.